Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Exodus 21. If you don't have a Bible on you, um, just slip up your hand. One of our ushers would love to get uh, a Bible into your hands. We want you to have God's Word on your lap, in front of you. Um, the, uh, the sad and wonderful truth is I have nothing for you. Um, I have no great wisdom. Uh, I have no authority uh, in and of myself. Um, I, I, and my hope is that you don't walk out of here thinking, well, this is what Pastor John says, um, but this is what God's Word says. That's, that's where the authority here uh, begins and ends. And so um, it's all about God's Word this morning. Um, you look at uh, Exodus 21, we're going to start in verse 28, and uh, if you just skim through that quickly, um, you're going to see we're hitting some interesting passages. This is our conviction that, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for us, and uh, we're walking through Exodus verse by verse, and that takes us some places where, you know what, if, if I was picking and choosing, uh, it would have been a lot of years of preaching before I said, you know what, it's time we talked about oxen. And, uh, and leaving pits open. That's something I think we need to deal with. Um, but God has inspired this, and he's inspired it for our good. And uh, as we walk through Exodus, here we are. And, and I think uh, as we kind of walk through this text, one of the things we're going to see this morning is that old adage is true. Uh, everyone wants to save the world, but nobody wants to wash the dishes, right? Everybody wants a revolution. Nobody wants to get up early. Jesus was put to the test by the Pharisees. He was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? You know the answer. Most of us think, memorize this as kids. Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. Paul said it again, Galatians 5, quoting Jesus. The whole law is fulfilled in one word or one command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we think, great, this is easy. All you need is love. Spectacular. Love will bring us together. Love will change the world. And then one of your kids throws a baseball through the neighbor's window. Suddenly, we don't want to talk about loving our neighbor anymore. That's an expensive window. And why on earth does he have this massive window right next to the park? He should have known better. Kid, I'll buy you a new ball. We're just going to walk away from this one, right? Maybe it's that old spruce tree in the front yard. Comes crashing down in the storm overnight. Happens to land directly on the neighbor's new car. That's just an act of God, right? I mean, you knew it was rotten. I've been meaning to cut it down. I just haven't got around to it. But, but what are the chances that it would fall right on his car? I can't be held reliable for that. Sounds nice to say. The whole law is wrapped up in this one command. Just, just love your neighbor. It's a little pricklier when we run that logic the other way. And we ask, what does it mean to really love your neighbor and we begin to answer that question looking at the law of God and seeing practical situations. Because if, if the whole law is fulfilled in the command to love your neighbor, then the command to love your neighbor is more thoroughly explained throughout the law. It's part of what we're going to see as we look through these verses today. So we continue our journey through Exodus. And, and again, we're in this unique section called the Book of the Covenant. Um, God has given the Ten Commandments to Israel. These are kind of his high level. This is their, their constitution. And, uh, and, and then these next chapters explain it. They kind of unpack it in, in everyday scenarios. Uh, again, not meant to be uh, technical, uh, just one-to-one -one equivalent laws, but this was like case law. This is, this is how you ought to apply the law in these kinds of situations. Now, as we go through this, you have to remember, um, this is Old Covenant law, right? So, these are the laws that God put in place for Israel through Moses in the covenant, the contract that God had with Israel through Moses. And, and when Jesus came, he brought in a new covenant, a better covenant, a new argument that, or a new agreement that, that fulfilled and completed everything that the first one was pointing to. And, and so as the church, 
living in this time after Jesus. We're not under the old covenant, right? Jesus came, the laws, the commandments, the old covenant became obsolete. We're under a new covenant. We live under New Testament commands. And so the next time your friend thinks he's so smart and he says, well, I read this verse, do you wear mixed fabrics in your clothes? Do you eat shellfish? Oh, you're not obeying the Bible. He said, no, no, you don't understand the Bible. That's the old covenant. That's been put away. There's a new covenant. We live under the commands of the New Testament. So we need to keep that in mind as we read through this. And we're not officially under these laws. And yet, the God who wrote these laws hasn't changed. His character remains the same. And so there are principles here that we can look at, we can learn from. But more than that, to understand the Old Testament as Christian scripture, to understand how Jesus understood it, after he rose from the grave, walking with two of his disciples along the road, Luke 24 Jesus says this, or it says this about Jesus, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus turned to the writings of Moses that we're looking at today and, and all the prophets, and so that's, that's kind of to say the whole Old Testament, and he interpreted it for them. He showed them, this is how you read it. This is what it means as pointing all of it toward himself. So that's our primary task this morning, that's what, that's what defines a Christian understanding of the Bible. It's not as easy here in the laws as it is in other places. It's not as clear or direct. You know, we, we like to get a, we go to David and Goliath and see this amazing story. God rescuing his people. We see God's faithful servant that, that wins the battle that Israel never could have won, that fights in their place and wins that victory for them. And, and, and it's the gospel just played out. We get to Exodus 21 and read about an ox goring a person. I mean, obviously you see the gospel overtones there, right? Um, That's just, uh, okay, so we have some work to do. Um, It's not as clear, but it's it's there. And we'll dig into that. Um, That's what we're looking for this morning. How, How do we love our neighbor according to God's law? And how do we see Jesus in this law? How do we see the gospel here? So let's get after it. The first thing we need to do, Uh, is just understand these laws. And I just want to know what they're talking about, understand them in their context. And the the first section, um, verses 28 to 32, um, just keep things interesting. Let's call it killer oxen. Um, What do we see here? Let me me read uh, this passage for us. So Exodus 21, starting in verse 28. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, The ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. So four different scenarios here for our killer ox. Um, The basic rule is this. If your ox kills somebody, the ox should be killed. But you're not liable. You're not held responsible. Um, It's significant the ox is stoned. Um, that's saying something. That, that was the way a death penalty was to be carried out for murderers. Um, this isn't just a practical thing. This isn't just getting rid of a dangerous animal. Um, this is saying something about the significance of human life, the value of human life. Uh, we looked earlier uh, at the laws about murder, and, and a murder is to be put to death. And we saw that's grounded back in Genesis 9-6. God says to Moses, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. There's an intrinsic value to human life that requires the death penalty for murder. And actually, it's interesting if you just jump back one verse, Genesis 9-5. It says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. So the, the death penalty is dealt out. Uh, on an animal, because of the value of human life. 
So here's the baseline. If your ox kills someone, the ox is to be killed, but you're not responsible. Verse 29 then brings in a twist. If your ox has attacked people in the past, if you knew that it was dangerous and now it's finally gone so far as to kill someone, now you are responsible. Then you and your ox are to be put to death. You're liable because you you should have known better. Now, there's room for the judge here to make some adjustments. Um, Maybe the ox gored someone years ago and and it hasn't happened recently. Um, Maybe the ox was provoked. Um, Rather than just imposing a death sentence, his his hands aren't tied. His option is to uh, impose a ransom. A ransom could be set And this was not allowed in the case of straight murder, but in this case, the judge deemed it appropriate. He could say to the man, the law demands your life. That's the sentence I could give you, but rather if you would pay X amount of dollars, presumably to the family of the deceased, um, as a ransom price, you could redeem, you could buy back your life. The last two scenarios here state that this law doesn't change. If your ox kills a child, someone's son or daughter, it's the same law. Um, It doesn't change if your ox kills a slave, uh, except in that situation, uh, if you remember as we kind of dug into slavery, the the slave would be working off a debt to his master, and and so there was a financial loss to be taken into account, and the owner of the ox uh, would also have to pay 30 shekels um, to the slave's owner, a, a compensation for his loss. Now, Again, this doesn't just apply to oxen, right? Um, These were intended to be examples. This is how the law is to be applied more more broadly in similar situations. This is about any situation, something that that you own that that hurts someone, that maybe even kills another person. There are some things that that maybe you could not have expected. Stuff happens. Um, People worked with oxen every day in the ancient world. It was a rare thing that someone got killed by one. They were, they were typically well-trained and, and handled all the time. But if the unexpected, the unpredictable happened and, and the ox freaked out, yep, the ox should die, but you're not responsible unless it wasn't unexpected, unless it wasn't unpredictable. If you should have known better, there's a, there's a principle here. This is maybe that tree in your yard that you knew was rotten, that you knew you needed to take care of. It was not safe. Maybe it's your brakes or tires on your car. You, you intentionally run down way past due. Kind of guilty of that. Kind of cheap. Um, I know those tires are dangerous, but there's a cost involved. Loving your neighbor means taking precautions, realizing that your carelessness doesn't just affect you, it affects others. Maintaining your car. Maybe not lending out that chainsaw that you know is faulty. Um, Keeping your dog on a leash. Taking responsibility when your negligence hurts somebody. That's loving your neighbor. It's practical. It's boring. Uh, It will probably cost you money and be a hassle. That's what love looks like. We're We're not talking about a mushy feeling towards your neighbor. It's action. Let's move to the next set. Verses 33 through 36. And this is about harm done to animals now. When a man opens a pit, or a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies... Then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead ox also they shall share. For if it is no, or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. These situations are a little bit more two-sided, a little more complex. A man opens a pit, probably a cistern, a a large basin carved into the rock with a small opening to to hold water through the dry season, um, presumably on his own property. And if he fails to cover it and his neighbor's animal falls in, what do you do? Well, your animal shouldn't have been on my property. This is my pit. This is my territory. 
Well, you should have covered your pit. It's dangerous. Well, the owner of the pit was responsible. He was to make restoration. He was to compensate his neighbor for his loss, essentially buying the dead animal at full price. Loving your neighbor means considering others and how you keep even your own property. When you shingle your roof, pick the nails out of the grass. Here's one I hate. Shovel your sidewalks. It's going to melt eventually, right? No, it's going to pack down and get icy and someone's going to slip and get hurt. And I'd be liable. I didn't care well for my property. I wasn't considering the other people. Don't let your property become dangerous. That's loving your neighbor. Verses 35 and 36 then speak of two animals fighting and one kills another. So even more kind of shared responsibility. Nobody's clearly right or wrong here. They share the loss. They sell the live animal and share the money. Um, They split the usable leftovers, the byproduct of the dead animal. Unless, again, one of the oxen was known to be dangerous. And then again, that that knowledge translates to culpability. You should have known better. You should have expected this and you were expected to pay for the loss of the other oxen. There's a growing theme here of, of responsibility for what we should have known and and didn't take action on. I think that's helpful as we walk through this. You knew you had something dangerous on your property. You knew that your your dog is prone to get a little nippy when there's kids around or whatever it is. Um, Loving your neighbor means removing the danger. It means covering up the old well out back. It means clean up the pile of rubble that the kids keep running over to. If you know it's dangerous, do what needs to be done. Remove the risk. Moving into chapter 22 then, things begin to escalate. Uh, Verses 1 to 4 talk about outright theft, the right to protect your property. So starting in verse 1, it says this, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If if the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. So you notice the issue of negligence. The person is responsible just to replace one-to-one what was lost or damaged. But Intentional theft, there's a penalty included here. This escalates. There's a thief that was to repay four or five times what was stolen because there's, there's injury added here. It's not entirely clear why it's five oxen and only four sheep. Um, maybe sheep are more prone to wander, more likely to be a crime of opportunity. I just, he was there, I grabbed him. Um, whereas an oxen would take a little more work. Um, possibly because sheep... Uh, were, were simply for meat or, or wool, whereas an oxen would be carefully trained and, and needed for work and productivity. There's an increased investment there. The end of verse 3 picks up again the, the idea of payment. If he, the thief, has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. And if the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, uh, he shall pay double. So there's no excuse for stealing. doesn't matter if you're poor and hungry, if you have nothing, um, you need to make restitution. It doesn't matter. And if you couldn't pay, you were to be sold for your theft. Now, this would fall under those slavery laws from chapter 21. We looked at that uh, in detail. Um, Suffice it to say here, this was not at all the wicked, cruel slavery that we saw in, in our history in North America. This is a very different reality. Slaves were treated well as part of the family. Um, he wasn't owned by his master. He was working off a debt for a maximum of six years, and then he's set free. And if the animal was found alive in the possession of the thief, um, he wouldn't pay back four or five times, only double, because he could return the original animal. Uh, There was much less damage caused. Uh, The crime would be less. Now, it's worth noting, um, these laws are very different from the laws uh, of other ancient law codes. Uh, Hammurabi's code, uh, the, the famous code from Babylon, about 300 years before Moses. Most significantly, if you stole from someone important, um, 
and you were unable to pay, according to Hammurabi, you'd be put to death. This, this goes back to the, the eye for an eye. Um, the, the penalty must fit the crime. You don't take a life over theft. Again, seeing the, the value of human life. Now let's go back to verses 2 and 3. We, we jumped over. What if you catch someone in the act of breaking into your house? What then? Oh boy, we, we seem to wrestle with this in, in North America. Do you have the right to defend your property or, or not? Well, according to God's law here, it depends on the time of day. And, and maybe that's a little baffling, but I think it makes sense as you play it out. You wake up in the middle of the night to the sound of someone breaking into your house. And in an attempt to protect yourself and your property, um, you kill the intruder. You're not liable. However, um, if it's daytime, if it's broad daylight and you kill the intruder, you, you are guilty of murder. In the middle of the night, um, you've been startled awake. You're vulnerable in the dark. You have no way of knowing um, what the person intends to do or, or who they are. Um, you do what you need to do to protect yourself, to protect your family and, and your possessions. But in the daylight, you can see clearly. You can assess the situation with much more accuracy. You can identify the intruder and have him brought to justice properly. And, and so those who would say it's never right to use violence, even to protect yourself, um, this law would say, no, if you're threatened, if you're in danger, there are scenarios you would not be guilty to take another man's life. Remember, the, the sixth commandment is not do not kill, it's do not murder. And those two are very different. On the other hand, there are those who are so quick to say, hey, if you're on my property, you've lost all rights. No, no, you're trespassing. I'm going to shoot first and ask questions later. How dare you come on my land? I will protect my land. And they almost revel in this idea of now I get to kill you. And No, that's not okay. God doesn't see it that way. All life has value. Even the life of a burglar is sacred, is created in the image of God. So taking a life when you didn't absolutely have to is not justified. It's not okay. And, and so in, in this law, killing a thief who was trespassing could, could make you guilty and under the death penalty yourself. It's not to be taken lightly. All right, I know there's a lot of laws. Can't leave anything behind. Um, we're going to wrap this all together in a moment, but let's press on. Just a few left. The next law is back to this idea of negligence, but this time it's actively causing damage. Look at verses 5 to 6. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the beast in his own field and in his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and catches thorns so that it's so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make restitution. So you destroyed someone else's property. Uh, maybe your animal gets loose and eats their crop or, or a fire that you had going for some legitimate purpose gets away from you and burns down their crop. You're, you're liable. You had to make restitution. You had to pay it back. And it was to be generous restitution I was to be from the best of your field, the best of your vineyard to cover their loss. Now, there's no added penalty. The, the assumption is this is just an accident, but you're still required to replace what was damaged. So even though you're just, it's just a simple campfire. I mean, that's all I did was turn my back for just a moment. It's just a, a small mistake. But you're liable to cover the damages. Maybe thousands of dollars. And this is their crop. This is their food for the year. Love is hard. We aren't talking about just a nice feeling to your neighbor, but, but love that makes hard, costly sacrifices. Obviously, ideally, um, love would begin with being cautious that this doesn't happen. Um, but in the event of an accident, it's owning up to it. It's paying for the loss. Verse 7 brings us back to theft, but now in the context of something given to another person for safekeeping. Read verses 7 to 9. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it's stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property 
For every breach of trust, whether it is an ox or a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, for any kind of thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God, and the one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. So no surprise here, if the, if the thief is found, he would pay back double, the assumption being he had what was stolen in his possession, same law as before. But if the thief is not found, the question then is, how do you know uh, that it wasn't just your neighbor who said, yeah, I'll, I'll keep that safe for you, and slipped it into his pocket? And the answer is, he was to stand before God to show whether or not he had put his hand uh, to his neighbor's property. Now, if you're reading the NIV, um, it may say, uh, stand before the judge. The Hebrew word there is Elohim. Um, I don't understand why NIV went to judge. Um, it's, not a, it's not out of the realm of good proper translation, but I don't think it fits there. I think God is the right translation. I think they were to stand before God and, and make a vow, present themselves, maybe, maybe before the judge or before a priest. And in verse 9, it says, in any case where there's a breach of trust, where he's illegally in possession of something, um, maybe he's unwilling to make a vow before God. Uh, maybe new information came to light to show that he was guilty. Uh, he was to pay double. Verses 10 to 15 then applies this idea of safekeeping to animals borrowed or rented. Um, I think this gets fairly practical. I hate borrowing and lending things. It's complicated and, and, and awkward. Um, so look at verses 10 and 11. For, um, if a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property and the owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. So for safekeeping of animals, obviously a little more complicated than with money or with inanimate objects. Animals tend to get sick or, or to die or to get injured, to get chased off by predators. And, and so the first list kind of fits under that category of acts of God. These are the, the natural circumstances outside of human control and so again, uh, a vow was made to say, that's, that's really what happened. I didn't, I didn't steal it. I didn't eat it. Um, it, was, it was chased off or it died. However, verse 12 goes on to explain. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. And if it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. So it's stolen. That was negligence. He should have kept a closer watch. He should have guarded it against that. Um, and if it's killed by predator, he can prove that he wasn't being negligent. If he can, he can bring some of it back. If he can show he was nearby enough to recover some of the animal, um, then he would not be culpable. Now, I think this is fairly practical here. Again, I, I hate borrowing and lending things because you have that question, who's responsible for it now? And apparently that was a problem in Israel as well, a question that they were asking. These are the last ones we'll look at, verses 14 and 15. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it's injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. So if you borrow your friend's quad and it breaks down or you crash it, um, you're expected to fix it or replace it to make it right. But if your friend is with you, maybe he's on the back of the quad, uh, the assumption is he's part of the decision-making that got you there and, and, and you're off the hook. You didn't have to replace it. And if you've rented it, then the risk of the item being broken is assumed to have been covered in that rental fee. So I think it's a pretty logical layout. But having pushed through all of this, the question now is what do we do with this? What do, what do we take away from this. Let's, let's apply this a little bit more. And I think on the face of it, as we've seen going through this, the first answer is love your neighbor. I think it's pretty easy to say in a general sense from these laws, God cares about fairness and justice among his people. Now, Israel lived under what was called a theocracy, right? God was their king and he ruled, uh, mediated through priests and prophets and eventually human kings who acted as his ambassador. 
as the church, we live in a bit of a different reality. We live as God's people, but under a secular government. And so we play by their rules, so long as they don't transgress God's rule. The Bible tells us to honor the authorities put in place, obey the laws of, of our country. But within the church, we should have a higher bar than this. We should have a higher standard still. As I said before, um, secular ethics asks the question, what are my rights? What can I demand? Whereas biblical ethics asks the question, what do I owe to those around me? We should be leaning into that question, being quick to say, I borrowed that tool and I broke it. I owe it to him to, to replace it with, with a better one than what I borrowed, voluntarily, gladly. I was careless and someone got hurt. I'm going to go above and beyond to, to make that right, to, to cover the costs that are, that are wrapped up in that, not just to apologize, but, but to fix it. First and foremost, this ought to happen in the church. We ought to be living this out amongst one another here. Paul actually scolded the Corinthian church for not doing this. Um, they had issues among themselves, and they were actually taking one another to court, taking each other into the, the secular law courts and suing each other. And so 1 Corinthians 6, verse 6, Paul says this, But brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brother? Paul's vision for the church, Christ's vision for the church is that, that there would never be a, a time where we have to have some unbeliever impose justice on us to settle a dispute, but that but that we would be eager to settle it willingly, joyfully. So you, you leave here after the service and, and Dean backs into your car. Leaves this big dent. And he was backing up. It's his fault. It's pretty simple traffic-wise. Now, Dean would never do this, but I'm going to make Dean the bad guy here because it's my story and I can do that. Um, Dean loses his cool. He says, well, why on earth did you stop behind me? You knew I was backing up. Look at the massive mess you made of my bumper. This is your fault. You're going to have to pay for this. What do you do? You take Dean to court? No way, man. Let's call the cops. They'll tell you, I'm right, you're wrong. That's what that police officer thinks. Walking into the church parking lot, seeing two people who, who claim to be followers of Christ bickering and pointing fingers and trying to push guilt and blame on each other. It's a disgrace. Now, maybe there's another believer there, and actually Paul would encourage this. that You could, you could bring in somebody else, maybe a, a friend who saw it or somebody nearby and say, can you help me out on this? Can you help mitigate between us? And, and maybe that brother or sister can say, Dean, buddy, it's pretty clear law. You're wrong. You got you to pay. But here's the bigger issue that, that Paul is pushing toward. Even if you're not in the wrong, even if you're letting yourself be taken advantage of, and our sense of justice jumps in, that's not right. That's not fair. But isn't unity among the church of more value than a $1,500 bumper? Like we say we value unity. Do we, do we value it more than $1,000? We ought to. Paul says, wouldn't you rather be wronged? Wouldn't you rather be the one who just can willingly say, hey, that's fine. I'll cover, don't, don't worry about it. I, you're right. I shouldn't have stopped there. I'll, I'll pay it. And we maybe should have the other fight. No, no, I got it. No, 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 I'll pay for it. That's a much easier fight to settle. Wouldn't you rather be abundantly loving than be right and having caused division in the church? Would you rather sacrifice your pride willingly, your right to justice, even your hard-earned money, 
in order to have peace, in order not to bring the church and therefore Jesus into disrepute, into shame and disgrace. Everybody wants to save the world, but nobody wants to do the dishes. Everybody wants unity in the church. Are we actually willing to tangibly sacrifice to get it? We ought to be eagerly seeking and, and going well out of our way to, to, to go beyond justice, to keep the peace, to love one another, willingly even be treated unjustly for the sake of love. Romans 12 says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. Listen to this, outdo one another in showing honor. And though unity in the church should be our our highest priority, that's number one, that's a no-brainer here, it ought to go beyond that as well. As believers, we ought to live above reproach in the eyes of the world around us. Uh, No one should be able to look at us and say, oh, they wronged me, they ripped me off, I was on the wrong side of justice with them. Uh, Philippians 2.15 says, we ought to be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That's not going to be easy. Among whom you shine like lights in the world. And this has gospel implications. This this affects how our neighbors see Christ. 1 Peter 2.12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. How does that happen? Even as they wrongly accuse you of defrauding them, of of doing wrong, you go so far beyond justice to make it right that that they see Christ as glorious and, and they come to repentance and faith and worship God on the day that he returns. We're we're walking this as a family right now. My kids love to ride their bikes in in this nice, quiet cul-de-sac across the street from us. It's a great place for them to ride. It's a quiet street, uh, except that a a couple of the elderly residents there will say made it abundantly and loudly clear that they don't want kids in their cul-de-sac. I have a hard time with that. My kids have every right to ride on the sidewalk. My taxes pay for this sidewalk just like yours. This is public property. What do we do? My flesh wants to argue. Stick it to you, grumpy old man. Like, how dare you? And you want to go battle for words? Oh, that's my game. We can play this game. I will win. Part of me really would have liked to slide some X-Lax chips into the cookies that went to their door. But what does that accomplish? What do we do? That was Josh's suggestion, by the way. I'm just going <laughs> to... Outdo and giving honor. Uh, well, what do we accomplish? What would that say about Christ and his church? What would that say about the position of my heart? We, we need to find a way as a family to make peace, to love our neighbors, to live together in, in unity, in a way that's above reproach, in a way that, that they say, I was wrong toward them and they were even kinder to me. It's not simple. I don't think we're doing it perfect, Um, but it's been a good practice in uh, practicing what you preach this week. What about that second question? So where's the gospel in all of this? What does this have to do with Jesus? John, you said the Bible is all about Jesus. The gospel is at the center of all of it. And so far, you've just told us what we ought to do. And uh, and if that bothers you, it should. That should fall a little flat. Let me show you how this idea of justice leads us to the gospel, but I think more importantly, how it's the gospel that then comes back and transforms and and empowers this idea of love for our neighbors. These laws lay some just basic foundation, how we understand what it is that Jesus came to do. Notice that when the law is broken, now not, not just a a coincidental wrong, but, but theft. There's a transgression of the law. There's punishment. 
There's a price to pay. There's been a movement in North American justice system since about the early 60s. Um, We've moved more toward the goal goal of rehabilitation. Our our justice system is less about punitive, it's less about giving a punishment, and and more about reintegrating people into society. And that's not altogether a bad thing, but, but God's law in Israel and in eternity demands that sin be punished. Makes some people very uncomfortable. There is retribution for wrongdoing. Hell is not about reforming people and fitting them for heaven. It's a place of punishment, eternal punishment. A righteous and just penalty that sin demands. And looking even at these laws, we see that that sin demands a penalty, that that we sin against God and, and justice demands, God demands a punishment, a payment. And the payment, the penalty for sin is hell. There are temporal consequences that we might pay here amongst one another, but the ultimate consequence lies with God. And the wages of sin is death. That's what we owe to God. But there's another beautiful piece of this foundation being laid right here, just subtly in these laws. Back in chapter 21, talking about the man who who owned a dangerous ox that killed someone, he's condemned by the death penalty. And then God says this, verse 30. This is significant. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. God is showing his legal system, which is the only legal system that really matters in eternity. It's possible for someone condemned to death to instead pay a ransom to redeem their life out from the death penalty. This little verse, just smack dab in the middle of open pits and dangerous oxen, is this crack in the door. I don't want to make too much of it. It's not, it's not explaining it here, but it's just, it's just those pencil marks beginning to sketch out what the painting will one day become of what the Messiah would one day accomplish what the rescuer would do when he came. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. We're condemned under God's law to death. We owe God hell for our sin. We deserve a penalty that will take us an eternity to pay. But it's possible that a ransom could be paid. That our life could be redeemed, bought back from death. You imagine this guy with, with this oxen. He knew he should have kept it locked up. He knew better. But it's his only one. The job had to get done. And he let it out to do the work. And now someone is dead. And the death penalty hangs over him for that bad decision. He stands before the judge, and the judge says, I'll allow for a ransom price. Oh, the relief. There's hope. I have, I have a chance. Name the price, whatever it is, I'll pay it. This, this is my life we're talking about. And then stark reality comes crashing back in. The ransom price is $100 million. And that Ox, now stoned, was my only possession. There's nothing I can do. It's over. I can't pay it. I can't make it right. I will be put to death. And then the judge, who also happens to be the father of the man your ox killed, steps down from the judgment seat, takes off his judicial robes and says, I will pay. The ransom price. He puts the full hundred million dollars down on the table. You're free to go. It's covered. It's done. That's the gospel. The very God that we have sinned against, to whom we owe this eternal debt, has stepped down from his heavenly throne in the person of Jesus Christ, allowed himself to be put up on that 
cross and on the cross, he took the wrath of God, the penalty that we deserve on himself. There's some who would say today, no, no, the cross is not about a penalty being paid. That's a, that's a wicked and angry God. They don't understand the Old Testament. They don't understand God's picture of justice. They would want to say Jesus came just to show us the way, to show us how to live. As he gave his life, we ought to give ours. They don't understand our sin. They don't understand the position that we're in before God. It's too late for that. We're guilty and we deserve wrath. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption. We've been bought back through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. He took our penalty. He redeemed us. He paid our ransom. This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus paying that redemption price for all who will turn from their sin and trust in him. What amazing hope we have. And, and again, it's not fleshed out here in Exodus, it's just, it's just barely opening the door, just showing us this is a possibility that continues to grow. And here's where it comes full circle. This is what enables and motivates true love, sacrificial love, because that's how we've been loved. If you understand the gospel, if you live and breathe in this amazing truth that, that I deserve death and Christ paid my ransom, how natural a thing is it to say, I'll cover that. I can absorb that. I can pay that price. I don't need to be justified in, in your eyes. I can, I can let that go. I can pay to fix the damage on your car, even though it's not my fault, because Jesus died to pay for my sin that was certainly not his fault. John 3.14 actually gives this as evidence of true salvation. He says, we know that. Here's how we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever doesn't love abides in death. If you don't Love, it means you don't understand love. It means you don't understand the gospel. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. It's his rich, extravagant forgiveness of us. His love toward us that enables us and motivates us then to love others. The secret to sacrificially loving other people isn't to look at them, isn't to think of how they might feel or how important they are and to focus on, you know, kind of grit your teeth. And if you go out of here, I just need to learn to love people better. It's not going to work. It's not about mustering up more human effort. The secret to loving others is to focus on Christ and how we've been loved, to, to live and breathe the air of redemption, to see the weight of my sin against God as infinitely greater than anything anyone could do against me. And out of that flows naturally then, I, I, can, I can love you, I can forgive that, we can, we can reconcile. So let's be enamored by this great love of our God. Let's fix our eyes again on this amazing gospel. Let it, let it captivate your heart. Your love for him might overflow to others naturally. Wow. Supernaturally. Let's pray. Father, thank you for laws about oxen and pits. Because even there we see your grace. Even there we're reminded again 
of our guilt before you that was heavier than we could bear, that was beyond what we could ever pay. But you made a way. You opened a door in your justice to allow for a ransom, a redemption price. And when we had nothing to give, but our life and our eternity, you paid it. You stepped in. God, help us to see the glory of that truth. Strengthen us more that we might know the height and depth and width of the love of Christ. And Lord, help us then to live out of that. God, help us as a church to be so quick trying to outdo one another in honor. Lord, that, that we would be so quick to forgive, to overlook hardships and wrongdoings and injustices for the sake of, of your glory, for the sake of, of your name. God, help us to live unblemished in the world around us. To love in a way that is astounding to our neighbors. To be forgiving and, and gracious in a way that doesn't make sense unless you see the cross. Help us to be lights in a broken and twisted generation. Father, we need you. We're so grateful for the amazing work of the cross. Fix our eyes there again, God. Enamor us with the glory of what you have accomplished, we pray in Jesus' name.